If you open your Bibles with me, open them to Psalm 32 as we go once again to this wonderful psalm and look at what it is that David has prepared for us this morning in Psalm 32. In the very first paragraph of the very first page of the Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, the author, pins the following lines. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. And I looked, and I saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not able any longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? And then shortly after this section of Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan writes that Christian is saved at the wicked gate, the narrow gate. And then comes a critical moment in Christian's life where he comes to the cross. And he comes to the cross because it's there that the burden of his sin is loosed from his shoulders and he saw it no more. And it's that point in the story that Christian's burden falls away. And for the first time in the entire tale, Christian is happy. And because of that truth, shortly after this, Christian begins to sing his first song of deliverance. And so he sings. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. That is the joyful song of a forgiven man. And I put that there before you this morning because I want you to know that as we return to this psalm, Psalm 32, we return to this most glorious story and and most glorious song in a message that we've titled, The Joyful Song of a Forgiven Man. The Joyful Song of a Forgiven Man, Part 2. In this psalm, it's usually classified as a prayer of thanksgiving. It's classified as a prayer where it's offered by a man whose sins have been forgiven, and you know that his sins are forgiven by the fact that the Lord has healed him. And in the superscription of this psalm, as we shall see in just a few moments, you can see there that it is written by David. It's a psalm of David given to us, and that is verified not only here in the superscription of Psalm 32, but also in Romans chapter 4, because it's there in Romans chapter 4 that the Apostle Paul attributes to David being the author of the words that he is quoting in that section of the New Testament, two first verses of Psalm 32. So though we don't have the exact setting, we have the author. We know it's David. We know that though the setting itself might not be written out for us, it's best to see that this is a reflection of David after another of one of his famous Pentateuch psalms, which is Psalm 51. 
So Psalm 51, as you know, we covered last time, chronicles his sin with Bathsheba. So this psalm is a psalm that he wrote after Psalm 51. It's a psalm of reflection after his initial reflection of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as you know, is a psalm of pain and emotion. It's a psalm of yearning for a clean heart before God. It's a psalm where he's wrapped up in the horror of his sin. It's like a raw nerve that has been cut, and he has self-loathing. And then in that psalm, Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13, David finally writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And so therefore, many theologians see that Psalm 32 is David's maskal, his teaching that he learned from the experience of Psalm 51. So when Psalm 51 speaks of, I will teach others, it is reflecting of the words that he has now penned in Psalm 32. So Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 go together. They go hand in hand together. And after our time today, in the weeks that follow, I intend to also have a short psalm series on Psalm 51, but that's for another time. So if you're taking notes today, let me just kind of review a little bit and get you up to speed where we were last time, and then we're going to continue in this great psalm. We saw that in this psalm, again, if you're taking notes, four lessons of a repentant sinner. The reason he's singing, the reason his, un, his confessed heart now is being able to be filled with joy is because he learned some lessons. And the lessons that he learned are here are four lessons of a repentant sinner that drive us to God. You could say four lessons of a repentant sinner that help us to forsake the sin that so easily dominates us. And these four lessons are, and I'm going to give them to you quickly, then we'll review. True happiness comes from a forgiven heart. True hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. True harbor comes from a prayerful heart. And true hope comes from a teachable heart. And if you didn't get those, that's okay, because I'm going to go over them as we go through the message. But as I pointed out last time, each one of these lessons in my outline, as you saw, begins with the word true, true happiness, true hardship, true harbor, true hope. And the reason I did that is because David here in Psalm 32 is painting for us true life, what real life should be, a life that is distinguished from a life of sin, a life that is true in its very essence of what it could be and should be if one would only confess And so I want to begin just this morning with a little brief review of the first point, a little bit into the second point, and then cover the last two points with you in entirety. So let's just begin with a brief review of what we learned last Lord's Day, and then we'll continue on through this very important song. Number one, as I just stated, David's first lesson for us in this psalm is true happiness comes from a forgiven heart. And we see that in verses one and two. David begins, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and who in spirit there is no deceit. So what you have here in the very first two verses of this this psalm is David is granting us a lesson about how true happiness comes from the forgiveness that only Yahweh can provide. 
And he does this in such a simple way that you might even kind of miss it unless you were looking for it because he does this rapidly. He speaks of different angles of what constitutes this happiness, of why this happiness can happen. And then he gives these areas of divine intervention that are very helpful for us to examine as to why, again, this joy is created. And so he's going to help us with this. First, he says, again, just in review, he describes sin in view of our relationship with God. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It it pictures us being in rebellion against the creator. The second word he uses to describe sin is when he says whose sin, the very word of sin, is covered. And he's describing a relationship there with the divine law. The divine law. We fall short of it and we are condemned by it. And then the third word that he describes here, as you see in verse 2, is iniquity. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. And that is describing sin in relationship to ourselves. It's a corruption or a twisting of right standards in our right being. It is the degree which we indulge in sin and we become twisted and we become twisting creatures. And then what's so amazing about these three words that he uses for sin in the very first section here is that he matches these in an opening stanza by a second set of three terms to describing what God does to that sin for those who confess it. Please notice he forgives it, he covers it over, and he refuses to count it or to impute it against the sinful person. This is widespread, this is massive, all-encompassing kind of forgiveness that comes from God, the only one who can grant forgiveness, that produces in the sinner an open, vulnerable sensitive spirit to all that deception that had been coming out of their hearts before. And now, as he says at the very end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now all the cunning and all the manipulation is gone, and now only honesty wants to reign. Verse 10, no deceit is in them. They admit their sin. They hold nothing back. People who have been forgiven, they reject the deception that was so intrinsic to their very being. They no longer live with themselves in a way that they used to live. They choose to stop the deception from both themselves and God. And this is the evidence of being forgiven. This is the glorious proof. This is the internal reality that manifests itself on the outside, which is joy. So much so that the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, you don't have to go there, but you can refer to it later, cites this portion of Psalm 32 by describing the blessedness, the the blessing, the happiness of the joy of the man who God imputes righteousness without works. If you go back there, you'll see that in Psalm 32 is intended to prove that a man who God accepts as righteous, apart from any works on their own, is a happy man. And he's happy because God has forgiven his wrongs. And God has covered over his sins, and God has not kept account of them. Then David goes on. He goes on to a second point, a second lesson that he learned as a repentant sinner, that not only does true happiness come from a forgiven heart, but number two, true hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. And we pick that up in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. 
My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. You really don't know hardship. You really haven't experienced hardship until you know the hardship of unconfessed sin. Why do I say that? True, Job knew hardship in the pit of his undeserved suffering. True, Jesus knew the greatest hardship ever known in the most brutal of ways in his sinless suffering on the cross. But David here is trying to express that his life, what was greater than starvation, greater than physical pain, greater than malaria or typhoid fever or any imaginable illness, was the hardship that comes from not confessing sin before God. This was truly hard. That's what's ultimately hard. And I think it's here in these words that we find a portion of the psalm that many of us can relate to. I say that because there's something in the portrayal of these physical effects of a sinful life that really strikes home. Think about it. Before we believed, before we pleaded with God to forgive us for our sin against Him, there's a very good chance, a great chance, that you and I were walking around just as dead men and women. We were walking around before we were confronted with the gospel, before we realized our sins before God, before we realized that we needed to turn from our sin. There's every chance in the world that you were physically living in the swamp water of your own creation. Whether it be sickness that comes from an overindulgent life or the weakness that comes from a tortured conscience, you and I most likely have experienced the hardship of unconfessed sin. But here we see the same weight of sin weighing down David, listen to this, as a believer. As a believer. Though some might say he was saved after this experience, it seems more likely that what we have here in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are the meditations of an unrepentant believer. An unrepentant believer caught in the quicksand of his own sin, very much like Christian. Christian and Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress was one who was forgiven at the wicked gate, but according to Bunyan, his burden was not released until he faced the cross and understood forgiveness, understood how much he was truly forgiven. In fact, the more you know about sin, the more you suffer in sin. The more you understand the darkness of your own heart, the more you experience the torture of your own transgressions. And so it is here with King David as well. Now, think about it. If what he learned in Psalm 32 is a reflection of what was given to him in Psalm 51 with the experience of the unconfessed sin of Bathsheba, then I think it's important before we continue that we just take a moment to go back to the verses 5 and 6 where they were written because the the inspiration for verses here for 5 and 6 for especially 3 and 4 was was this unconfessed man experiencing unconfessed uh, experience of his iniquity and so to set it back in its context i we believe that verses 3 and 4 here in psalm 32 when he speaks of i kept silent day and night your heavy hand was upon me That's referring to that period of time that we know as the nine months plus of David's constant refusal in his own soul to admit what was so glaringly obvious to everyone else. For nine months, Bathsheba was in the process of 
childbirth, which included a week of planning and carrying out of Uriah's killing, as well as a week of Bathsheba's mourning. That entire time, David stayed silent. He didn't speak. He didn't speak to God. And one wonders even even spoke to his own conscience. Again, there's no doubt based on verses 3 and 4 that David never once during this entire time, get this, bowed his knee before God in prayer. He did, he must have, but never once did he cry out loud with his heart, against you and you only have I sinned. Of course, think of it. He was the king of Israel. He must have prayed. He must have had petitions. He must have gone through the ritual of what was expected of him as a Jew and as a leader. But every day, he avoided confession in his prayers. Every day, he neglected to go before the Lord and confess what he had done. Every day, he represented Yahweh to the nation. Every day, he carried out the commandments of Yahweh and spoke for Yahweh and exalted Yahweh. But never in the entire time did he speak to Yahweh about what had happened. That is staggering. That is staggering. Now remember, this whole sinful collapse started once David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant with his baby. That her husband was away, and therefore the sin of infidelity was going to be found out. So David had to begin this whole process of corruption and deception to himself and to others. And though David's heart must have surely been pounding through his chest, he planned and conspired a plot to bring Uriah home from war. He designed and schemed a strategy to put her faithful husband in a place where he could be intimate with his wife once again and therefore to cover over the sin that David had done with Bathsheba. And yet because of Uriah's uncanny fidelity to his own comrades and his own personal integrity as a soldier, David's whole scheme crumbled. You see, David's passion to have his sin be covered up made him a wildly resourceful man. In fact, Uriah's murder made him go to unknown levels of not only plotting and planning, but nausea and fever as he waited each and every day for Uriah's body to be found dead on the battlefield and until the reports came of his death. So listen to me here. Please don't allow the fact that David could descend to the depths of such depravity as a believer drive you and give you any kind of relief about your own sin in your own life. Please don't let the fact that David allowed himself to dive headlong in such wickedness, even though he was called a man after God's own heart by God, don't let that even give you the slightest bit of encouragement to remain in your sin. For you, my friend, have no evidence that you are a believer if you are indulging in sin that way. And you might have not thought that because you think it's true for David. And yes, but my friend, you have no word from God telling you that you are a man or woman after God's own heart, as God has said about David. And therefore, you have no such security concerning your own life that you belong to Yahweh. So don't let the fact, you understand? Don't let the fact that David lied and killed and prostituted himself be anything to you except the greatest example in shame and hardship imaginable. That was David's situation. 
In just a matter of a little more than a week, the conspiracy against Uriah was conceived and executed, and David's guilt grew deeper and deeper, and his conscience screamed louder and louder to his heart and heart, maybe even allowing his moment-by-moment decline in strength to be felt in his body, but for some reason not enough for him to confess anything to God with his mouth. And then to compound this fracture, to to go even further after a week of mourning the death of her husband, Bathsheba moves into his palace as his wife. And this was no act of charity. This was no kind of heroic act of trying to help out a despondent widow. This was an eerie, self-protecting act of desperation done by a man drowning in his own sin. To be there. In, in front of the nation of Yahweh, perhaps making the, the wedding vows coming from the high priest, to, to have those vows of fidelity and faithfulness being uttered to Bathsheba in front of the entire nation while knowing that in her womb she held his child, and yet the entire time his heart is a stone. You know, it's not impossible to think that David's physical state of weakness was noticed by those around him, you would think it would be. Perhaps his entourage was hesitant. Maybe they were even scared to point out the obvious. He was physically growing more and more disheveled. Though no one could see what was happening in his soul, of course, on the outside, they they looked long enough, they would have noticed that something was wrong in his body, in the way that he treated one another. Perhaps... Perhaps he never looked anyone in the eye any longer. Perhaps he never laughed as heartily or smiled as genuinely as he once did. Maybe his gait was a little slower. Maybe his brow was a little more sweaty. Perhaps it was clear to some people that something had changed. There must have been, to those around him that were praying for their king, there must have been something that they noticed was very different. Something shifted in his demeanor. How do we know that? Because he kept silent about his sin, verse 3. He was wasting away. He was groaning all day long. God's hand was heavy upon him. It is possible, and I want you to think about this, of course, in, in, in relationship to your own life. It was possible that David was able to disguise his failing health and to hide his shaking hands in such a way that maybe the people even closest to him had no idea what was going on. Maybe they thought his mental and physical decline was due just to the pressures of ruling over the people of God. We can't be sure. But once the beautiful widow had made his bedroom her home and her pregnancy began to show, even the most innocent of bystanders didn't feel so innocent anymore. And it's at this time, entering stage right, that we have prophet Nathan walking into frame. After months and months and months of having the shame of his adultery and murder and lying being hidden from his own soul, kissing his wife, cuddling with his newborn son, after months of being around crowds who are cheering and cheering him as he honored returning soldiers from the battlefield who bowed to him in reverence, Nathan comes and speaks to him from God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about the moment 
when Yahweh appeared to Nathan, but Nathan's report to David lets us know that it definitely happened. It's important to remember that during this time in biblical history, it's important to notice that the prophets of God would get direct revelation from Yahweh, and then they would proclaim it uh, in whatever form that the Lord had communicated it to them. So, of course, those prophecies established most of what we have in the Old Testament, in the minor and major prophets. So usually, if you were to receive a revelation from God, you would take the form of, and the word of the Lord came to me saying... Or, this is what the prophet of God saw concerning Jeremiah or Isaiah or Zechariah, etc. And then, after that statement, the prophet would speak the very words of Almighty God as if he had been the one through whom God had channeled to accomplish his desired goal. But in 2 Samuel 12, go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel 12 where we have this account recorded, and again, this is just covering the hardship, how true hardship is really coming to those that do not confess their sin. We go back to 2 Samuel 12, where we see that at least in Nathan's example, this prophecy was much more immediate. There's no mention of the prophecy itself, merely verse 1 in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David. So by that time, Nathan comes on the scene, 2 Samuel 12, 1, and of course he already had received the words of the Lord, had told him, and he knew that he was going to have to confront the king with the truth right between his eyes. But instead of being straightforward, instead of being blunt or accusatory or right to the point, he uses the most ingenious method of confrontation that Nathan could have ever been directed to use. He confronts David by pretending to tell him of this great injustice that had happened against someone else. Instead of coming right out and saying, you stole Uriah's wife, you murdered her husband, you impregnated her with your own child. Instead of saying that and going down the path of you know, direct attack, He tells David a story that allows David to admit the truth to himself without ever even knowing it. It's an interesting, interesting approach. He tells David a story about a poor man who had nothing but a little ewe lamb and how a rich man who had everything was so hungry that instead of choosing a lamb from his own flocks, he slaughtered the poor man's only lamb to eat for himself. And then as we read, as we did this last time, 2 Samuel 12, look what happens in verse 5 to verse 13. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you to your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. 
Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So now... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Then David, do you see this? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That's in there. Nathan confronts David. David confesses his sin before Nathan. Which brings us back now with that in mind to Psalm 32. Going to, again, verses now 5 and 6. All of that in your mind, allowing yourself to understand the force and the fury of that built-up momentum. He says now in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's what we just learned. And my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now he tells us right here in Psalm 32 that even though Nathan, get this, was the one that he confessed it to, it was ultimately God that he confessed it to. You know this because of Psalm 51, as I said before, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Let me ask you a question. He he doesn't mention this, but did, did David repent of his sin before Bathsheba? Of course. Most certainly he must have, and he confessed his actions as sin before her. The psalm doesn't record that. Did David repent of his sin before Uriah? Yes, but there was no opportunity for his confession because Uriah, as you know, is already gone. He's killed in battle. He's present in heaven. There's no prayers of confession that are given to the dead. So he can't confess before him, but to God, the one who establishes the law and the one who establishes what sin actually is, the only one who knows sin as sin really is, the one who knows all things, who made him and owns him and sustains him, And the only one that can forgive him, to him, David confesses his sin as being against God and God alone. You know this verse, but if you go, or you can just remember it, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it kind of brings everything into perspective when we think of it in in these terms. Because when the apostle says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, if you confess your sins to a brother or sister that you've sinned against, we don't confess to a priest. We don't confess in a confessional. We don't seek a mediator between us and Yahweh. We confess our sin before those whom we have sinned against 
and before God himself. If you have sinned against anyone, you need to confess that sin. You need to be restored to them. This is clearly the teaching of Scripture. You don't tell them that you're sorry. You don't, I mean, you might be sorry, but you don't tell them that you're sorry. You don't tell them you apologize because that's really, really nice and everything, and possibly you need to be nice, but you need to confess your sin as sin, right? I've sinned against you. In fact, go to James, book of James, just because he has a very uh, important and interesting comment here. James chapter 5, verse 16 James chapter 5, verse 16, he makes this point here that feeds into what it is that David is speaking of too. He says, therefore, James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Do you see that? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confess here in the Greek is a verb that basically means to agree with. You agree with God. You agree with God. Yes, what I have done is wrong. You have told me it's wrong. I see it's sin. I agree with you. In the New Testament, it's also just a verbal agreement of God's greatness. I confess your greatness. Again, I agree with you, what you have said. But here in the later of James, which I think is fascinating, is the only verse in the New Testament that explicitly commands believers to confess their sins to one another and not just to God. And get this, in the context of those who are sick, in the context of those who are sick, implication being that perhaps your illness can be contributed to your lack of confession. You haven't confessed. There's an illness, so confess your sins. Be healed. Which brings us to the next lesson that comes from David. Not just only does a repentant sinner learn true happiness comes from a forgiven heart and true hardship comes from an unconfessed heart, but also a repentant sinner, number three, learns that true harbor comes from a prayerful heart. True harbor comes from a prayerful heart. Back to Psalm 32. And now look with me in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. God is the hiding place for believers. God is the harbor for all who fly to him. God is the shield of protection to all who stand before him. He is our place of safety. And according to David here, this place of safety is realized through the prayer of confession, verse 6a, at a time, listen to this, that you, O Yahweh, may be found. This confession is at a time when Yahweh may be found. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to unpack this thought for you because this idea that there is a time when God may be found is very intriguing. It's a very interesting thought, and I think it needs some comment. In the Masoretic text, it says, to pray in a time of finding only. To pray in a time of finally only. Which some people understand that God finds and visits some iniquity in his servants. But others say, as you have in the authorized version, It says, to pray in a time when thou art gracious and allowest thyself to be found by those who approacheth thee. So the idea seems to be this as you're 
putting this together. God can be found even in the midst of the deadliest of seasons, which, of course, begs the question, then when is this time that God is found? What is the moment? And I might add, this begs another question, namely, if there is a time when God can be found, does that mean that there also is a time that God cannot be found? I mean, fair enough. There must be a time that God cannot be found. If there's a time when God can be found, doesn't that imply there's a time where he can't be found? A a time when God is hiding or far off or distant? Now, we know the scriptures teach that God is omnipresent. And we know that the Bible teaches that he is everywhere all the time. So it would stand to reason that in some sense, God is always findable because he is always near to us all as close as our next breath. I say that because the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 17.26. Acts 17.26, you don't have to go there. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. Psalm 139, as you know, tells us that it's impossible to escape God. For he is everywhere a man can be. No matter where I go, O Lord, there you are. And so the mystery begins that the same God who's not far from us, the same God that we cannot escape from, the same God in whom we live and move and have our being, nevertheless must be sought. He must be groped for. He must be pursued. He must be found. The prophet Isaiah says the same thing in the 55th chapter of his prophecy. He says, Isaiah 55, 6, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In other words, This finding of God, this nearness of God is related to, follow me, the moment when the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous man forsakes his thoughts. So this is key. Though God is always present, he's not always near. Think about that. Though God is always present, he's not always near. God draws near to the brokenhearted and he makes himself findable when his creation is truly repentant. Does that make sense? Because Moses is going to say the same thing. Again, Deuteronomy 4.29. Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek Yahweh your God, and you will find him, for you will search for him with all your heart and all your soul. So condition number one, God can be found when you negatively forsake your wicked ways and positively search for him with all your heart and soul which is just a way of saying when you seek with him with everything that you have, everything that's within you, when you stop making excuses for your sin, when you stop no longer waiting to see if you can have one more sin, one more day, one more time, and when you believe that you are going to die if you resist God any longer, therefore you will not rest until you find God. That's when God can be found. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh plans for peace and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and I will come and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
Listen to this, verse 14. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh. So the man or woman who's turning from their sin, confessing their sin, and yearning with all their heart to find God, meaning they are yearning to make themselves right with God, and they yearn for God through cries through the pit of despair, through prayer, through cries for help that recognize their sin as being sin, then God declares that in that moment, he will act and listen and allow that repentant sinner the opportunity to find him. So go back here now, focus on Psalm 32. It seems then that when David is speaking of a time when God may be found, it has less to do with God's timing. You see this? As if to say that God comes out of hiding for a moment, then when you haven't responded rightly, goes back into his shadow it has more to do with the receptivity of the confessor's heart, of your heart. Are you ready to find him? And I say that not just because of what the other scriptures that I quoted say, but here to be pointing out the verses, also because in verse 32, 6b, he says, Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. David now is speaking Again, of confessing his sin, listen to this, before a flood of great waters overrides him, before adversity overtakes him. So the implication of that moment is to pray, and the moment for God to be found is in that moment, the moment where the waters are rising and the ceiling is growing near, and the psalmist says to call out to them when the fear and the sin of impending death is rushing upon you. Pray for God to draw near. And then once he decides to grant forgiveness and sin is covered and not taken into account, then God becomes your hiding place. And he is the safe harbor. And he is the refuge for your spiritual harm. And he is the guardian of your soul. We don't have time, but it's impossible for me not to think of the prayer of Jonah in the belly of the fish. Oh, why not? Let's just go there. It's, it's just such a great, it's a great prayer. And he's, he's in the belly of the fish, and there he is, surrounded by water, surrounded by the bowels of the fish, pressure from the deep. It's Jonah 2, excuse me. And look what he says here. Then Jonah, it's page 112.44 in the Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to Yahweh. You get that? And he answered me. I cried for help from the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, into the current surrounded me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. So I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to my very soul. The great deep surrounded me. Weeds trapped around my head. I went down to the base of the mountains. Many people consider him to have died here and then be resurrected. I went down to the base of the mountains, the earth, with its bars closed behind me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. It was the great hymn writer, Charles Wesley, who penned these words, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storms of life is past, safe into thy haven, guide, 
Oh, receive my soul at last. So you see, true harbor, true harbor, safety, him being your hiding place comes from a prayerful heart. And there's a little bit more in this section. He goes on to say at the very end of verse 7, something that's interesting. He says, again, Psalm 32, verse 7, B at the very end. He says, you surround me with songs of deliverance. Think about this. You surround me with songs of deliverance. He goes on to say, being surrounded by deliverance is an interesting phrase because it seems that David is not just saying this about himself. It's not like David is saying, you surrounded me with cries of my own thanksgiving, though that could be true, of course, but rather he seems to be alluding to the fact that the entire world around him, in the midst of his confession, are singing songs of deliverance as well before him. So the songs of rescue that surround him must refer to others who have been delivered as well. So it is presumed that this means because of the Lord's protection, because David fellow worshipers around him are shouting praises to the Lord, that you surround me with shouts of those who rejoice in my deliverance because they too have been delivered. This is astounding. Think about this. Think about this. When a man or woman confesses their sin, when the Lord is near and he forgives, then not only does the Lord Jesus Christ tell us in Luke that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents in the presence of the angels. Why? Because the implication there is God himself is rejoicing because God is rejoicing, the angels rejoice. But now here we get evidence that also there is joy in the presence of God's people on earth when one person confesses their sin. You know this. You see, you've, you've been here on a Sunday night when baptisms are taking place and shouts of the congregation happen when someone gets, usually it's the college folks to the left, and you know, and they're just like, they're beside themselves because their friend just confessed of, of their sin and their, their love for Jesus Christ. We had the same thing with Bruce when he was up here. And he was confessing and was restored and the joy, the, the songs of deliverance surround. It's been going on for thousands and thousands of years because the people of God love hearing how God swooped down out of heaven and forgave just one sinner because that reminds us of the one hope that we have, which is in him. There's one last lesson of the repentant sinner, and, and you need to stay. It's the one last lesson. And I know, I know it's Mother's Day, and, and we love mothers. <laughs> and, and this will help you, Mom. True happiness comes from a forgiving heart. True hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. True harbor comes from a prayerful heart. And now, lastly, true hope comes from a teachable heart. And I'll do this rather rapidly. Verses 8 through 11. I will give you insight and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridled to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness, thou surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This is David's last phrase, right after his Selah, and he comes to this last moment of reflection. And it seems like a dramatic shift, if you notice, even as I read, because David, it shifts from David being the narrator to God speaking. Now God, the one who created him, 
He, here stands the forgiven sinner, joyful, vulnerable, dependent, and in the company of all these holy ones that are also proclaiming the greatness and the joy of forgiveness. And here it is that God finds him and all who are afraid that they might once again fall into sin, that they might go back into the same sin that they have just asked forgiveness for. And he gives them comfort and instruction, but listen to this warning. And what's the message? In the midst of your confessing your sin, in the midst of you turning from patterns of wickedness, God has intervened and God has been found. And now he tells David and all people who have the ears to hear that God himself will give insight. God himself will give you direction. God himself will counsel you while he keeps his eye fixed upon you, just as Grace Chung sang so beautifully even today. This is the message that David understood. And this is the message that gave him hope. There's going to be massive trials ahead of you. There were massive trials ahead of him. There are going to be massive times of betrayal and disappointment. And in David's life, blood and even death are going to come. But never again would he fall back into the same sin. Never again would David fall again into such depravity and sear his heart. There would be other things that would happen. There would be other sins that he would have to fight. But This sin would not come back, never like the one he was forgiven for God by. And why? Because God is telling him that he will sustain him and he will learn from him. And he had to learn from God. He had to learn and remain teachable because to be teachable, he would have to learn to submit submit to the one who had forgiven him everything. And so before David can return to praising God at the very end here in Psalm 32, before he can end by saying this joyful song of a forgiven man, he's warned. And I just want you to listen to this warning, verse 8. Do not be as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. As I'm saying, David's heart has to be teachable. You have to be teachable. And so he says, Yahweh does, don't be like a beast of burden. Don't be like the one who responds to its master with restraints of leather and chain that only goes as far as they're instructed to go and no further. They're reluctant under the yoke, but they have no heart to drive near to their master. This this is a warning to not just cling to obedience in general because I was told to do so, but to go instead away even from the restraint into what is at the heart of the precept and the heart of the command. And it's like, here's the warning. Don't be like a work animal. Don't be like a horse or a mule who only do what they're commanded to do based on pain and restraint and force and instruction instead. The idea here is to be guided by the knowledge that God himself will teach you and God himself will counsel you, and there can be true learning and true teachability and true guidance. So what initially begins as law and restriction becomes in your life a pattern of love and grace and gratitude. So don't be stubborn to confess sin. Don't be stubborn or 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 resistant to God's instruction and keep yourself begrudgingly away from that sin. Rather, find hope in knowing that the great God of creation has forgiven you and given his only son for you and keeps his loving eye, as we heard, fixed upon you. That gives you hope.
that gives the believer hope that the same God who forgave the depths of David's sin is the same God who stands ready to be discovered by you and by me. We began our time last week speaking of how Augustine, the most prolific commentator in the Psalms, placed this psalm on his wall before his bed as he was dying to meditate on it. And we talked about how it was that he came up with a phrase, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And to know oneself to be a sinner is what gave him hope in his dying moment. And in his commentaries, he says this last comment on Psalm 32, which ends our time today as well. He says, you have done nothing good, but forgiveness of your sins is granted to you. If your actions are scrutinized, they're all found to be bad. If God rewarded you just retribution for those actions, he would certainly condemn you for the wages due of sin is death. But God does not mete out to you the punishment you deserve. He owed you retribution. He awards you forgiveness. So it is through being forgiven that you begin to live in faith. That's the message of Psalm 32, the confession, the joyful song of a forgiven man or woman. Let's pray. Father, these teachings are so important, so amazing for us to comprehend, and so timely. I do not know of any in this room that have unconfessed sin for You have not allowed it to be heard, but there is unconfessed sin in the room. And I just pray, Lord, that whatever would happen, that you would drive this individual, all of the individuals, to a point where they are honest with themselves and they are honest with you and they see that you can be found at a time where you will draw near to them and that you would create in their heart the pressure and also the need to reach out to you, to confess their sin to whomever it is that they've sinned against, or to you alone, O God, and let them live in the joy of that forgiveness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.